My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 145, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 2 Kings 3, 2 Chronicles 26 and 27, and Psalm 72. 2 Kings 3. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to the Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What, explained the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha. And he said, This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now, all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms, who called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. 
But when the Moabites came to the camps of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Ker, Haraseth, was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Second Chronicles 26 Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecolia. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbaal and against the Maonites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem and at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions according to their number as mustered by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah the officer under the direction of Hananiah, One of the royal officers, the total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under the command was an army of 307,500, men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of arms, bows, and slingshots for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. 
Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from the beginning to end recorded by the prophets, Isaiah, son of Emmaus. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings, for people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. The people, however, continued their corrupt practices. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord and did extensive work on the wall at the hill of Ophel. He built towns in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers in the wooded areas. Jotham waged war against the king of Ammonites and conquered them. That year, the Ammonites paid him a hundred talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 cores of bailey. The Ammonites brought him the same amount also in the second and third years. Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. The other events in Jotham's reign, including all his wars and the other things he did, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. And Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tributes bowed before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the king of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. So we ended yesterday's story of 2 Kings 2 with the first two acts of the prophet Elisha. Dr. August Conkell, an Old Testament professor at McMaster's, described the first as the miracle of healing waters for the prophetic group in Jerusalem to remove sterility and allow fertility. But the story isn't so specific whether the sterility issue was the land, animals, people, or all three. The next one does read odd in our language, if you remember, in our culture. Remember the story of the young men, or I think the the word was boys, who yelled at Elisha, the prophet, 
Get out of here, Baldy. Do you remember that from yesterday? This wasn't just a juvenile jest, as Dr. Conkle states. In Hebrew, a bald head is the opposite of a garment of hair. And remember how we read that about Elijah in chapter 1, verse 8 of 2 Kings. The people described him as having a garment of hair. Dr. Conkle says this wasn't about hair or the lack of hair, but an attempt by this group of boys or young men to diminish or take away from Elisha's God-given role as a prophet of God. The response, Elisha called down a consequence, and that consequence was two bears that mauled 42 of them. This reinforces the reputation of Yahweh God and those he appoints as his mouthpiece or his prophet. So that's where we left off. And then in this story, 2 Kings 3, we read about a war with Moab. Remember, I didn't remember this at first, but the Moabites and Ammonites were the two descendants and named offspring of Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters. Remember that in the cave after they were rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 verses 30 through 38. So it's interesting to think this war, because we've already got this split with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and now even you know distant relatives from the past, they're acting as enemies largely in this story. So in this specific story, the tribe of Moab is revolting against the northern kingdom of Israel, who at this moment is being somewhat friendly with the southern kingdom and the kingdom of Edom. While the north did not follow Yahweh out of respect for the south, and their need for water when they started to go fight this battle, I imagine they were willing to listen more so to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha, out of respect for the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, who was called, Dr. Conkle describes, he called down a cloudburst. So I had to look into this a little bit. It's common, not like frequent, but it happens sometimes, particularly in more desert-like places. It's described as an extreme amount of water dumped in a short period of time, and it may not have that slow, expected onset of storm-like symptoms about to happen. It can just happen somewhere out in the hills, and you can think about if you live in a desert area, you know a lot of water all at once on dry land means what? It means mudslides, floods, things like that. So as promised, water came down and went into the valleys. It's pretty cool to think about just this cloudburst that Elijah called down, there will be water. And the water reflected like blood in the morning desert sunrise to the Moabites. So they think, because obviously there wasn't a storm, they didn't know it had rained, this had come down from the valleys, they see this reflection and they think that this is blood And they think some sort of mutiny or civil conflict ensued between the northern and southern kingdoms. So when they approached, they did not suspect an attack. And the Moabites were then being defeated and pushed back, conquered. Then, in this really kind of odd ending, Dr. Conkle explains how the Moabite king sacrificed his son to their god, Chemosh, to appease his wrath, or so he thought, right? Trying to deliver them from a total defeat to the northern and southern kingdoms and the kingdom of Adon. But instead of Israel taking God's deliverance of this victory to fruition and recovering the territory they had lost to Moab, they didn't. And there's this failure of faith which resulted in their return without the recovery of any territory. Oh, so much, so much. 
And then in the second Chronicles story, the southern kingdom gets a faithful king, Uzziah, who becomes king at 16 years old and remains king for about 51 years. Dr. Winfred Cordian described how his last few years of reign may have been a co-regency with his son, Jotham. And you'll know why in a minute, or you'll remember he got leprosy. (laughs) Under his reign, the southern kingdom experienced initially peace and prosperity, fortification and flourishing. There was even some investment into innovative defense methods. I don't know if you recall that. I thought that was really interesting related to hurling arrows and boulders. At the same time, the Northern Kingdom was also experiencing a lull from war and well-being. Yet Dr. Cordian explains how Uzziah's understanding that he was blessed by God and to use the blessing to bless others seems to have shifted in Uzziah's heart and focus And it went inward onto his own unique and special relationship and status to God, giving him, he thought, special privileges where the rules don't apply. As we read how he takes the priestly task of burning incense in the temple, overstepping the written boundaries with no permission or reason outside dislocated heart and thoughts regarding what it means to be blessed by God and to have privilege. The privilege is directed and tamed, preserved by God. Remember way back when we read Jonathan say to David, I will be second to you in 1 Samuel? I reflect on how important it is for us to remember we are always and at least second to God and his word that explains his ways. We read about the high priest calling him to task, but instead of taking the reminder, the direction, it's like, here's your warning, but he doesn't, which is written and given by God. Uzziah gets angry instead and defective, right? Then something like, well, it says leprosy breaks out on his forehead and he is ostracized from his former life and role and the temple too. Oh, tragic. It's such a reminder to check our hearts as Dr. Curian states in his commentary. The glory of Uzziah's reign had given way to shame because he saw himself as above God's law. Then in chapter 27 of Second Chronicles, because, remember, most of Chronicles focuses on the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that attests to God's great mercy and love and his continuing promise and rescue and the redemption mission, even with so much unfaithfulness and fallout. In this story, we read about Uzziah's son, who does seem to remain faithful to God, and God did deliver them from King Ammon, who would deliver treasures to Jerusalem. But Dr. Cortian writes how the story reveals King Jotham did write in the eyes of the Lord, and he grew powerful as he walked steadfastly before the Lord. Note, I love how it says walk steadfastly before the Lord. I feel like that's the frequent wording and language. Sometimes, though, I think in our language and culture, we seem to want to walk with God or say that we're walking with God. But doesn't that sound more like we're equals or co-regents to God? I know it's something small, and maybe it's because I'm an academic. But I think there's something different in my heart and mind and imagery when I think walking before the Lord versus walking with Him. We aren't co-regents, and we are vice-regents, as Dr. Walton says, We're second. We're second, second, second. But note, even then, the people under King Jotham's leadership, they continued their corrupt practices, even though he did steadfastly walk with God. So this is interesting. He was faithful, but this could mean or subtly hint that maybe the way that he was leading hearts wasn't awesome. We don't know. Since the author did not reveal leadership failures or shortcomings specifically, I think this might be a good reflection point 
to consider the challenge of the if and when those we lead or are responsible for, they choose another way. In this story, we'll read just how opposite King Jotham's son Ahaza will be from him. And it's really quite terrible. That's coming. So there's something to be said about reflection on ways to improve our faithfulness and leadership of faithfulness in faithfulness. But at the same time, there has to be recognition and remembrance that the people we lead also have their Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God-given agency with a portion of his power and authority to either yield back to God and accepting his authority an appointment and a purpose, and a life of shalom, a kingdom of priests, or, in all capitals, or, to not, and to not yield, and to defect from God's authority, his story, thereby distorting the story so very much, and spiraling into a narrative, into a reality that corrupts hearts and lives. Holding these two truths in humility is quite important to me. Reflecting on my heart and my leadership of hearts in faith And at the same time, remembering that those I lead have agency of their own hearts and may yield or defect. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.